0: Hey everybody, this is your host Matt Castellini and welcome to Chicago Capital. I could not be a bigger fan of the company and founder at the heart of this episode. I think it's one of the most exciting growth companies in the country and an amazing representation of the Chicago startup ecosystem and growth mindset. David Rabbi grew up in Southern California and first arrived in Chicago in 2013, a newly minted Booth MBA student. Throughout the course of his time at Booth, David pursued a variety of entrepreneurial projects that kept him busy along with his studies. He had an extremely full plate, but he still wanted to maintain a healthy lifestyle and that meant cooking at home. David grew up eating home-cooked meals for dinner and desperately wanted to maintain the habit during his time at Booth. However, he looked around at the market and realized that nothing truly solved the pain points of a modern, professional, or consumer who wants a convenient and quick home-cooked meal. It was there in his apartment in Chicago that the idea for Tavala was born and the rest was history. Tavala has grown over the years, most recently raising a $30 million Series C investment. The company has seen its share of turbulent times and home run successes. Through it all, David has served as co-founder and CEO, and he joined me to talk about the recent successes that Tavala has had in the wake of COVID-19. We also dig into the current state of the meal kit market and his thoughts and perspective on the Chicago startup community. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And with all that said, here's my conversation with David Rabbe, CEO and co-founder of Tavala. David, welcome to Chicago Capital. Thanks so much for joining us today. I am incredibly excited to have you here.
1: Yeah, really excited to be here too.
0: So I figured we could just dive right into the main course of the conversation and have you walk listeners through the story and the genesis of Tavala. And just to forewarn you, I do have a few more food puns in my back pocket, but yeah, we'd love to hear the background about Tavala.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, so I, I was uh, sitting in an apartment very similar to the one you're in now, uh, maybe, let's see, it's 2021, seven years ago now, um, cooking for myself using the oven, uh, the stovetop and this countertop steam device that I had and feeling frustrated that I needed all these appliances to make one meal and that it was taking me so long, and I'm coordinating the timing and temperature on all these things, and had this moment of, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. Um, and that was the, the very first genesis. And as I started talking to more people and getting feedback on the idea, I quickly realized that the problem is more than just the cooking piece, and is actually, you know, the beginning of the journey from planning to shopping, to preparation, to cooking, and then to cleanup. And and so quickly, I you know thought, all right, I want a home-cooked meal, but I don't want to do any of those things. And that doesn't exist in the market. I, I can get pre-cooked food that I reheat in a microwave. I can get a meal kit, but I still do all the work. I can't get the best of both worlds. And, and so that was kind of the aha of like, all right, let's go build something to tackle this problem.
0: And you've talked in the past about getting to, when you decided you wanted to tackle this problem getting to an MVP as early as possible, you know, not developing your product in a silo, but instead getting a product out to the market as fast as possible, and then iterating on customer feedback. And it sounds to me like you guys really nailed kind of the lean startup methodology. And, you know, shout out to Mark Tebbe's entrepreneurial discovery class and uh, Eric Reese and Steve Blank. But was this a conscious choice you guys made in the early days of your product development? It was.
1: Credit my co-founder, Brian, with a lot of this, uh, especially on the hardware side, we're taking a lean startup approach is a bit atypical. We were, I'd say, maniacal about really defining the assumptions we were trying to validate and moving as quickly as possible to, to do that. And so for us, our MVP was pretty simple. It was, hey, the oven has to work. It has to work consistently and the food has to taste great. And and everything else is gravy. Uh, we can do all the other things over time, but if those things are true, we're testing our core assumption that we're gonna win on convenience and on quality, and and then we can kind of learn and iterate from there.
0: And who were your early customers that you were first looking to target? Was it working professionals? Was it young moms? How did you guys think about those early customers and how has that sort of evolved over time?
1: Yeah. So we we did a Kickstarter campaign about a year before we launched. And so we got a, a pretty wide swath of the population of, of early adopters. I think that's kind of the general characteristic of, of people on Kickstarter. Um, and then it took us a long time, I'd say, to like really hone in on our target customer. And in many ways, this was a a mistake that we made. I think we had so many different types of people using the product, different age ranges, demographics, use cases, and we struggled to pinpoint who exactly we wanted to go after and, and be bold and, and say, hey, we're going after this customer and, and you know we'll probably get a bunch of others, but we were not as pointed as I think we should have been. And and that was a mistake. And and we 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 chose a few different lanes that ended up being wrong, but I think kind of high level, it took us a while to get to the the Muse customer that we speak to now that that I think works quite well.
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm curious about your go to market strategy over time. What marketing channels were most effective for you early on and what channels have you relied on as the company has matured and as it's grown?
1: Yeah. I, early on our biggest driver was press. Uh, more than anything, getting earned media drove a ton of customer acquisition for us and and we were fortunate to have a product that was very timely and and that was interesting and so we were able to get a lot of coverage and and do that ourselves without having to spend money on on an agency or or outside help and and We struggled to acquire customers through paid media for a while um, but then over time as as we got sharper on our brand and our pricing and our targeting uh we started to unlock more channels and and the the first and largest uh was facebook and instagram uh so those were great for us and and i'd say Really, from the early days, we had very strong word of mouth. That was the other piece, is just organic, people telling other people about the product.
0: Did you, in the early days, when you were pitching venture capitalists trying to raise your seed round, was the hardware component a challenge to get investors you know, over the hump? I think there's an adage that hardware is hard in terms of you know the unit economics and the supply chain inefficiencies, but I, I feel like the way you guys approached your product development, staying so lean, probably assuaged some of those concerns. But how did that sort of pitch go when you came in pitching basically a food tech idea with a hardware component attached to it?
1: Yeah, it made things a lot harder, um, much, much harder. I, you know, I think for a lot of investors, hardware is a, a black box and, and they don't really understand it. And it's, it's easier to just kind of say, hey, there's this huge landscape of companies I can invest in. Let me just say no to Bucket's so that at least I can narrow my scope a bit. And and for a lot of investors, hardware falls into that bucket of, I don't understand it. There's a lot of risk. It's a lot, it's very expensive. I'm just going to stay away. And, and so that was the case for us. There were a lot of investors that either it was a hard no or, you know, they'd hear our pitch, but then the hardware just kind of spooked them, especially early. I think, you know, that, that has changed over time, but when we were pre-launch and only had early prototypes, there's there's a litany of companies that have struggled to go from there to mass manufacturing and that was a hard hump to get over we were fortunate to to finally have investors that believed in us and backed us, but uh, it took a while to to raise money.
0: 2020 was obviously a monumental year for you guys um, for many reasons. But I actually briefly want to go back to 2019. I, I think that was also a cornerstone year for you and the future of Tavala. What were some of the challenges you guys faced in 2019, and how did you overcome them? Yeah,
1: 2019. You know, we went out to raise our Series B, and and that was very difficult for us. Like, you know, with hindsight now, it was clear we didn't. Have product market fit. We, we had grown a good amount. And, and then the nature of the business is you don't need a, a lot of customers to build a really big business. And so, you know, our revenue numbers were growing nicely, but we, we were not a hockey stick by any means. And so we struggled to raise money. And, and fortunately, our our investors stepped up. We raised enough money to, to kind of get us to the next milestone. And, and that meant like finding product market fit and doing it in a relatively short amount of time. And you know, I think that focused us, it allowed us to say, Hey, there's all these sacred cows. Let's let's get over those and let's test whatever hypothesis we have that might unlock this for us. And so, you know, there's there's a story to how we found it, but by Q3, Q4 of 2019, our growth really took off. And and the nature of our business is we're we're a food manufacturing company among other things, and so there's a real human impact to that growth where, you know, every week we were adding a, a significant amount of customers and meals but not really set up to absorb that. So, you know it was it was very much like hair on fire the growth is amazing but we're struggling to keep up with it
0: and you know 2019 turned into 2020 the pandemic hit and you guys were successfully able to raise your series b what did that allow you to do throughout 2020 and you know how did the business grow throughout 2020 during the pandemic
1: yeah we were you know i'd say we're one of the fortunate businesses that COVID has been a, a tailwind for us in many ways, you know, I think brought a lot of awareness to our space, to our product. And with people at home, they're looking for other solutions to get food on the table. Uh, and so the, the B gave us a lot of ammo to, to grow, um, you know, to, to add more customers, to add more capacity, uh, to add some features, to expand the menu and, and just to survive. I'd say like 2020 was a difficult year. And so kind of just making it through that alone felt like an accomplishment.
0: Congratulations on your recent Series C raise! So exciting! Exciting for the ecosystem. Was the plan always to raise another round so soon after the Series B?
1: No, not not that soon. I'd say you know we were fortunate to have a lot of interest from investors and and decided to act on that a little earlier than plan. And you know this is a capital intensive business. We've known that from the the day we started it. Uh, And so the opportunity was there to raise capital and we decided to do it. And, you know, as the business continues to grow, we're adding people and we'll be adding another facility in Utah. So, you know, continued scale for us is kind of the next chapter.
0: I'm always curious about founders and how their leadership role Changes over time. Can you talk about the ways in which your leadership role has changed? I would imagine being the leader of a pre-seed startup is quite a different responsibility and a different role than being the lead, you know, the leader of a, a Series C, essentially a growth stage startup at this point. Can you talk about how your role has changed and how you've sort of adapted to that over time? Yeah, it's a great question.
1: I, I, you know, one of our values is is believing in the growth mindset, and that's true for everyone in the organization, including me, and I. Think think if you can't scale with the organization, the organization will pass you by. And that's, that's no different for me as it is for, you know, a junior employee we hire right out of college. And so, you know, I, I try to be really deliberate about what, what do I need to work on? What do I need to develop? How do I need to change as the organization grows? Fortunately for me, I think, uh, my my innate tendency is uh, to delegate and, and to not be like too hands-on. And so where that might've been a weakness earlier on, that is a strength at this stage. Uh, and so I, I don't have a hard time letting go of things. You know, once once I have people that I trust, I do believe big time in giving them a lot of autonomy and so you know i'd say at a high level that's one of the biggest things is hiring great people and and giving them a lot of room to run and and then secondly i think as our business is scaled recognizing that i'm a leader to a lot of different people with different backgrounds different skill sets different jobs here and finding ways to be a leader to, to all of them is is a unique challenge that I'm continuing to work on. So it's definitely a fundamentally different job today than I had even two years ago.
0: And I feel like there's probably nothing that can really prepare you for it, right? I mean, you start out with this great vision, but you know, when things actually succeed and growth ramps up, it's there's probably no way to prepare for it. I don't think
1: I mean I think the only way to prepare for this job is to do the job. So, you know, had you taken another company from nothing to series C, Series D, that's that's prep. But other than that, any job Job you're gonna find you will probably be at one of those stages and, and if you're lucky you'll progress but it's very hard to practice what we're doing so I try to surround myself with people that have done it before um, and you know some advisors our board peers that are a little ahead of us just to try to have a bunch of sounding boards and, and people that I can learn from
0: you know I think we've talked about the past of Tavala I'd love to touch on where you guys are at today what sort of the plans are now after this Series C raise. So looking out to 2021 and maybe 2022, what are some of your growth objectives or initiatives that you guys are trying to to undertake?
1: Yeah, I think for us, you know, a big part of this is, is scaling. And you know, our, our business it has a large operational component. And so scaling that is not easy. And opening another facility a couple thousand miles from our home base, not easy. And so that's, that's a big part of what we're doing. And then similarly on the marketing and product side, you know, starting to expand the, the awareness of who we are in a big way and, and really build our brand. Uh, that's, that's something we've invested a, a little bit in, but want to invest much more heavily in this year and, and next year. And so, you know, I'd say those are kind of two of the biggest areas for us where we see a lot of opportunity and, and that's, that's what it will take to get our business to the next level.
0: Any plans on a brick and mortar store in the future? I know COVID may have stepped, you know, put you guys back a bit, but I know a little strip on Armitage in Lincoln Park. You can have a shop right next to Allbirds, Warby Parker, Foxtrot, Away, all the great DTC brands of our era. I think a great Tavala store could work there. Yeah,
1: it's, it's, we've definitely talked about it uh, at some point having brick and mortar presence. You know, we talk a lot about, Keurig and Peloton as, as great examples for Tabala, and they took different approaches. I, I'd throw an espresso in that group, too. They took different approaches to how they approach retail, and I think there's lessons to be learned from all of those. Um, COVID has definitely put a pause on on these, and so for us right now, you know, brick and mortar is not in the near-term plans, but I'd say medium-term, absolutely, It's but, but don't know exactly what that looks like.
0: The technology of the oven as well, I, I, I'd i love to just talk a little bit about that in case listeners aren't familiar. You, you buy the oven, but it's not just the hardware. There's also a meal subscription that you can tap into and receive every week. You know, Have you guys actively looked to build that tech surrounding the oven to the point where you can bring more and more meals home from a Whole Foods, for example, and strategic partnerships can really open up what the oven is capable of doing. Has that been a, a priority for you guys, and will it remain so moving forward? Yeah, we've
1: got about a
0: 1,000
1: SKUs from the grocery store that cook automatically in the oven. It is not a huge strategic priority for us right now to, to continue to build that out. I think medium to long term, it, it might become a bigger piece of what we do. but But today, most of our efforts are focused around Our own meal program and continuing to build that out innovate there add more variety Um, and, and that's where we see the most opportunity the most usage the most interest and so where we're directing the most resources
0: yeah i'm curious about your thoughts on the general meal kit funding environment There was a ton of enthusiasm around the space, and VC dollars really poured in the mid-2010s. And then that enthusiasm started to wane, it felt like, after 2018. But then I think meal kits saw a resurgence in 2020 as consumers were looking for new ways to eat at home during COVID lockdowns. One thing that really interests me about Tavala is the moat you have established. You can't really go and buy another competitive smart tech oven there probably isn't space in your kitchen. So I truly think you have that working in your favor. But I am curious as to your thoughts on the overall meal kit landscape.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I think pre-COVID, you know, there were some companies, small number, that had proven very successful in the space. Specifically, HelloFresh has done an amazing job. And other companies that that have not done as well, whether they, they folded or required or you know valued at, at not great numbers. And then I think COVID, you know, became a, a boon for a lot of those businesses when they needed it. And the question now is, you know, what does the landscape look like coming out of COVID? What will the demand be for meal kits? Will it fall off a cliff? You know, I think the meal kit industry is here to stay. I don't I don't think that industry is going anywhere. I don't think it's going to be as big as some people thought it was going to be two, three years ago. But I think it, it's here to stay. Um, I think the prepared food and food delivery markets will be much bigger. Food delivery already is. But yeah, I don't I don't think meal kits are going to go
0: anywhere. Do you think you guys kind of fit into the same category almost as a Peloton where consumers have really moved a lot of their lives into the house? And obviously that was a result of COVID. But part of me thinks that this... Can be this will be embedded post COVID. The convenience of something like a Tavala or a Peloton offer—it's almost the same sort of effect on the consumer psychology. Would you agree that that's kind of in the realm of where you guys operate, the same as Peloton?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of similarities to what Peloton has done for fitness and and how we view what we're going to do for food and you know where the Peloton lives and where the Tavala lives in the kitchen. I, I think Peloton in many ways has created an entirely new category and we think we're doing the same thing. And we're, you know, three, four or five years before, you know, behind Peloton, but for our own space. So so certainly big shoes to fill, but we do think we've got similar potential in the food space. And and I think you're right. I think a lot of these habits will stick. Uh, there's, you know, there, we, from when we started Tavala felt like this was just a, a better way to get food on the table and, and COVID or not, like we still think that's true. You know, we also have said, we're not going to be able to combat people's, you know, desire to eat at restaurants or have their friends over for dinner. And I think, There will be a period of time where that's the overwhelming desire for folks. But my general belief is the post-COVID world, whatever that looks like, behaviors will look like something in between pre-COVID and during COVID. So I I don't think we're going to see the extremes of, hey, people are eating 21 meals at home, but I I think people will eat at home a lot more than they did before. And I think people will continue to use their Peloton bikes at home and the raft of other services that people have discovered that are just more convenient, regardless of whether or not it's safe to leave your home.
0: And I think you, Tavala, along with um, another business in Chicago, uh, Chow Bus, it's, it's funny to me, I think I probably count myself as a super user of Tavala, and I've heard of there's Chowbus super users who order three times a day, every single day. I just think there's something so fascinating about that. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, we, sh- we share an investor with- in Left Lane Capital too. So, but yeah, that's, that's crazy to hear. I'm curious how that will change post-COVID.
0: Now, diving into the meat and potatoes of the conversation, I'd love to touch on Chicago. Can you talk about your relationship with Chicago? Why you decided to incorporate and launch Tavala here?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, I moved here to go to business school at Booth and, uh, you know, started the company while I was in school. And so at that point it made sense, Hey, I'm in school. We're going to work on it here. I graduated and we we won the new venture challenge. This was 2015. And so I started to build a network here while I was in school. And then the new venture challenge opened a bunch of doors. And so, you know, it made sense for me, for me to stay and, and work on the company here. I'm originally from Southern California, but had built you know, a really good network. Started to really enjoy the city. Met my now wife at the time, and so decided to to start the business here. And then we got into Y Combinator at the end of 2015. We moved to Silicon Valley for about four months, and then made the the deliberate decision to move back to Chicago in mid 2016. And basically, our gamble, if you will, was we felt like we would be able to recruit better talent here. Uh, we'd be able to retain talent better here. And, and more than anything, that was the bet. And and we thought, hey, our company at the end of the day is just going to be a collection of people. And, and that will be our single greatest asset. So if we can get better people here and keep them longer, let's do it. Uh, and, and we felt like we'd be a a big fish in a small pond in Chicago in many ways, and and now with the benefit of five years of hindsight, I think it was the right decision. Um, and, and certainly, there are things that we missed out on by not being in, in the Bay Area, but on the whole, I think this was a good decision.
0: Yeah, I and you know you mentioned a lot of great reasons to move from Southern California to Chicago. You forgot to mention the winters. I think that just you know. Test the fortitude of any startup founder. If you can handle, if you can handle winters in Chicago after being from Southern California, I, I think you can handle anything. Yes,
1: yes. That I mean, the last year I've questioned my sanity a little bit, but um, that is certainly true.
0: Um, that's interesting. I did not know that you spent you know four months in Silicon Valley. So I guess you know your perspective and. Would you say Chicago has a strong startup community today? And how has that community grown since you guys started Tavala here? Yeah, I
1: think it's uh it's not a huge startup community, but it's strong. And I feel like it's very supportive. I, I definitely have a lot of peers here that I've leaned on for help and advice and introductions and have tried to pay it forward to, to companies and founders that are earlier in their journey than I am. And yeah, I think it's it's growing. And I and I'd also say that founders here have a lot of pride in being from Chicago and, you know, they have some chip on their shoulder, I would say, and wanting to prove that this is a good place to build a business. So yeah, I think, you know, we're happy with the decision. I think Chicago has been good to us and hopefully know, hopefully we can be very successful and and show that this is a good market to build a company.
0: Yeah. And I think another thing that I find interesting about any startup that builds its business in Chicago, I know your seed and series A rounds, I believe were involved Chicago VCs, but once you get to that Series B and Series C stage, is that when you kind of have to start looking at a national level? I think that's a that's an interesting component to Chicago that I'd love to hear your perspective on. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a great point. The amount of growth stage capital for, you know, fast-growing startups is lacking in the Midwest. There's a, there's a few funds certainly that that do rounds at that stage and of the size that we were looking for, but not a lot. So there there is a gap here, uh, no doubt. And so we, we ended up raising the bulk of our, our B and our C on the coasts and, you know, would have loved to raise it from here, but there just, there wasn't enough capital.
0: Do you think the ecosystem just probably needs more time, um, maybe more successful exits, more just more maturity in order for that to materialize so that future founders can kind of stay within this ecosystem to raise their future rounds of capital?
1: That's a good question. I don't know that it's a matter of time, I think I think the opportunity is here. It's just some, you know, a group or an individual or someone needs to get together and raise a large growth stage fund targeting, you know, whether it's consumer or, or B2B companies that are based in the Midwest. And and there are some, right? Drive Capital in Ohio does this kind of work, Valor here. So there are a few, and, and I think there's a lot of opportunity, but yeah, I think you just, you need more people that that see that opportunity.
0: Switching gears a bit, in your development as a founder here in Chicago, were there any great organizations that you've been a part of since business school that have helped you develop as a leader, as a founder?
1: The two, they're not organizations, but one, I, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a lot of mentors. Uh, so individuals that were either former operators or investors that have worked with a lot of young founders uh, that have played a huge role in, in helping me grow. Uh, and then, you know, more recently in the last year, we've brought a, an executive coach to our team for myself and and for our leadership team. That's been great uh, in terms of helping us Grow as, grow as leaders. So th- those are kind of the two I would point to.
0: That's great. Well, I know, you know, we're we're, we're close to time, but I have to ask, you know, as the CEO and founder of a successful food tech company, any favorite restaurants in Chicago that you want to give a shout out to? And if you could create one meal in your tavala oven, basically every single day from, from a Chicago restaurant, you know, what would it be? Wow,
1: that's a great question. Maybe not a restaurant, but the place that immediately came to mind, we live really close to a, a seafood shop called Dirk's seafood, where we go, we go shop all the time. I think they've got the best seafood in the city. Whatever kind of seafood you like, they've got it. It's super high quality, uh, and and we use our tavala all the time to make whether it's their salmon or their crab cakes or their scallops. They cook amazing in the tavala. So may, maybe one day there's a partnership there. Who knows?
0: I was going to say, I was going to say, I think there's a there's a strategic partnership cooking right there. <laughs> All right, David, I really appreciate you coming on. This has been fantastic. I know people are going to love this conversation, and I can't wait to have you on again in the near future as uh, Tavala continues to see success. Great. Thank you so much. This was a blast. And if people want to find you, David, and follow Tavala and your guys' story, uh, where can they go?
1: Just our website, tavala.com, is is the best place to to check us out and, and learn more about the business and the product.
0: Great. We'll put those in the show notes. David, thank you so much. Thank you. If you are a founder seeking venture capital investment at the pre-seed through Series A stage, check out Manifold Group. We're a venture holding company based in Chicago with offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and soon Atlantic Canada. We believe early stage private investments represent an excellent investment opportunity, but existing investment models in the space leave much to be desired. Manifold is a new model for growth in the new economy designed to create and capture value at the early stage through synergies across its venture fund, incubation and acceleration studio, and advisory firm. Learn more about Manifold at www.manifold.group. And please tune in for the next Chicago Capital episode.